Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. What a remarkable week. I am old enough to remember when August used to be the dog days. And uh, I think I've mentioned this several times. Last August turned out, I think, to be pivotal for the Biden administration. And this August certainly has the potential of also uh, being a pivotal month. You're seeing a shift in the conventional wisdom about the midterm elections. Inflation seems to be cooling a little bit. Uh, the tide may be turning in the war in Ukraine. All of those things are happening. Meanwhile, uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats are racking up some some pretty big and unexpected legislative wins, whether they'll matter or not in normal America, we don't know. And uh, we continue to have uh, primary elections that, uh, that underline Donald Trump's absolute vice-like grip over the Republican Party as as he goes from uh, strength to deplorable strength, more election deniers move closer to power. You have the right absolutely on in fuego after the raid at Mar-a-Lago. Republicans who are rallying, there's a big rah-rah moment. And yet, because we live in a split-screen universe, which is a nice way of saying alternative realities, uh, we are also, you have to acknowledge that Donald Trump has had a hell of a week. I mean, we could spend the first 10 minutes just going through all the stuff that's happening to him, whether it's the Fulton County Grand Jury, the investigation in New York, the appeals court ruling that says that he actually has to turn over his tax returns, which are apparently not under audit anymore, uh, turn over his tax returns uh, to Congress, more subpoenas being issued to his henchmen and his Confederates. Uh, Pennsylvania congressman has his uh, phone seized. Uh, so to sort out all of this, including how the hell we got here and whether it will make a difference. We're very lucky to be joined by Dana Milbank, nationally syndicated columnist for The Washington Post, who is out with a new book this week, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Dana, welcome back to the podcast. It is great to be with you, Charlie, in this very busy August week when everybody was supposed to be at the beach. Well, that's it. I mean, I'm, honestly, there was a time in my life where I think everybody in journalism that I knew would have taken pretty much this week off. This would be the week that, you know, you, you circle it on your calendar. Well, nothing's going to happen then, right? Exactly. And who in their right mind would release a book then? <laughs> it's a bull But here we are. Move. August is the new November. Well, that's, that's true because there is no downtime. Okay, so we have a lot of ground to cover, but I think we have to start. Yeah. with the fact that the former president of the United States pled the Fifth Amendment 440 times yesterday. This is part of the civil suit investigation by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, who is uh, probing Trump's business operations. And uh, Trump issued a statement that he's just not going to answer any questions from the racist Attorney General of, of New York. By the way, Dana, okay, so just so people don't think I'm reaching here, Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that he throws in the word the racist attorney general, basically, yes. isn't that Donald Trump's way of saying, and by the way, she's black. <laughs> I mean, what else? Why else he just throw that word out there? Yes, I, and I'm not even sure why he feels he needs to use coded words anymore. I, <laughs> the, the cat's out of the bag. You can, you, go, you can go ahead and say the attorney general is black and, and therefore... <laughs> is after me, just like that uh, Mexican-American judge is after me. Yeah, I mean, we're sort of way past the era of subtlety here. But the fact that uh, the president, uh, the former president, pled the Fifth Amendment, which, of course, he has every right to do as an American citizen, not to give testimony that would incriminate him, right? He is completely free to do that. And other people, 
um, are free to draw inferences from this, are, are free to say, well, why are you pleading the Fifth Amendment? Why are you refusing to answer questions that you think might incriminate you unless you think you might be incriminated because you committed crimes. Now, you know who thinks that way, Dana? Do you know who thinks that way? This guy thinks that way. Bob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? When you have your staff taking the Fifth Amendment, taking the Fifth so they're not prosecuted, I think it's disgraceful. Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment. Horrible. Fifth Amendment, Bob. Yeah, so uh, Dana, he's uh, look. There's always a tweet, right? <laughs> there's a, a tweet for every purpose, and in this case, multiple audio clips for this purpose. So let's talk about where we're at right now. Um, I, I just want to stress once again that you know, in our news cycle, even during the dog days, there seems to be this inexorable need and demand that everybody have hot takes uh, about everything. We mm-hmm. still don't know what happened at Mar-a-Lago, yes, right? I mean, we sure. still don't know what they were looking for, why mm-hmm. they raided Mar-a-Lago, and we don't know what they found, do we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charlie, if we were in a normal system right now, uh, we would say, okay, well, this doesn't look, uh, as a legal matter, this doesn't look good for the president, and everybody would be counseling people to take a deep breath because we don't know the facts. Mm-hmm. And instead... What we're hearing right now from Fox News is we're under attack, greatest attack in the history of our republic. We're hearing from Newsmax that Trump is in danger of being assassinated. We're hearing from elected Republicans in Congress saying things like, they're coming after you, no one is safe. This is reckless rhetoric that is designed to rile people up at a time when everybody's already uh, so close to the edge. And of course, it only takes uh, one lunatic to cause mass mayhem. So, you know, we're at a, in, in totally uh, uncharted grounds here. I mean, I compared it this week to the, the run up to the Oklahoma City bombing when people were just playing with fire as the uh, militias were growing in power. And I, I really fear that we're at that kind of moment again. You know, so on the one hand, we've got the legal discussion uh, going on, but it's completely eclipsed by this notion that this corrupt, uh, racist government uh, and the corrupt FBI and the DOJ are persecuting uh, their political opponents. So even uh, Trump sitting there and taking the fifth is yet more example uh, to his supporters of him being persecuted, of him being the victim. There is nothing that can occur in our system now without it redounding to uh, Trump's victimization. Well, you wrote this week, I would like nothing more than to be wrong about this, but the reckless response by the GOP Fox News access to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago makes it feel as though we're falling into the abyss. And coincidentally, I quoted that in my newsletter yesterday saying, I too would like you to be wrong about this, but you're not. This does feel like a uniquely dangerous moment. And it's the moment at which you would hope that if there are still responsible voices on the right in the Republican Party, this would be the moment that they would be, you know, raising, you know, caution flags. And yet they are whipping it up, providing the permission structure for the most absurd and obscene conspiracy theories and characterizations of their own government. Yeah. And I mean, I could see them, you know, wanting to rally behind uh, Donald Trump. But the, the, the way in which this is being done now is to it's a deliberate effort to turn people against the government to believe that the government is out to get them. 
And this is exactly the sort of thing we were seeing uh, from the likes of Steve Stockman, remember him, and Helen yeah. uh, Chenoweth back in 1994. You know, if the ATF agents are, you know, coming for you, you know, take a headshot, you know, kill uh, kill the SOB, said Gordon Liddy. And look, that's why I said I'd really like to be wrong about this, but we're already at a point of violence. And if you look at, as some have at the, you know, pro-Trump boards and, and social media, they're talking, you know, huge talk of civil war, calls to arms, when does the shooting begin, bloodshed, and, you know, as, as I was saying a moment ago, it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to have some coordinated patriot group or Oath Keepers doing this. You need to have one guy uh, in his basement who just, you know, has a 3D printer and just made a, a switch for his uh, his Glock handgun that allows it yes. to fire 15 rounds in a, in a second. Um, so it, it just uh, it just seems to me, you know, you, you, you never want to say any one piece of rhetoric is responsible for any one act of a madman, but a whole lot of inflammatory rhetoric is going to uh, cause things to go badly. And people, I think, do need to understand, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, seditious conspiracies and insurrection attempts to overthrow the government. However, the other side of that story is, is that if you convince enough Americans that your government is indistinguishable from East Germany or communist Cuba, if in fact they are oppressive tyrants who are destroying the constitution, if you convince people that in fact the election was stolen, then it is not a completely irrational response to say, then we should overthrow that government, right? I mean, this is what sows the seed that that if you look at police and law enforcement and the federal government, as jackbooted thugs who pose mm-hmm. an imminent threat to everything that America stands for, then mm-hmm. then the patriotic thing is to fight back and to engage in insurrection. I mean, this is the danger. I'm not defending it or providing a rationalization, but to just yeah. underline the real danger of what yeah. happens if people begin to think that the democratic process is completely illegitimate. And the only response to this kind of tyranny is 1776, is to shoot these guys in the head if they're about yeah. to take away your, your rights. Yeah, it tragically, it is rational. Remember uh, Sharon Angle, another famous sure. name, this was from 2010, talked about Second Amendment remedies uh, being used to respond to the tyranny of the government. Tyranny is, is showing up quite a bit again, even from uh, elected Republicans. Uh, so that is, uh, I mean, if you are under attack, if the government has resorted to uh, tyranny, well, that's exactly what your Second Amendment uh, uh, remedies uh, are for. So it's not like a theoretical risk. We've seen this happen at various times. We saw it in 94, 95. We saw it in 2010, 2011. And now we've had a much bigger buildup and much more easier for would-be malefactors to uh, coordinate online or just to radicalize online. And the weapons are a lot easier to come by. So one of the really interesting things that you've done in this new book, The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, is you try to address a question that I wrestled with all the time. is like, how long has this been going on? Where did this come from? Was there some sort of a turning point? So in your book, when you ask the question, how did the GOP get where it is today? You trace the roots of the conspiracies and the lies that are, you know, have created the world. And you go back to... 1994, when Newt Gingrich led the party to the midterm victory. So talk to me about why you think that Gingrich was the 
pivotal figure in this devolution, deconstruction of the Republican Party. Sure. I, and, and Charlie, I want to say that it wasn't obvious to me in real time that this is where this was going to go. It was disturbing, but it wasn't obvious to where, where this was going to go. And I know there were a lot of good Republicans at the time and people who were maybe, maybe yourself included, who were uh, aligned with a lot of this, who, who could not s- at it's all true. see where this, this was going. But in retrospect, it makes a lot more sense. So you had Newt Gingrich in the 1980s, late 1980s, was saying the real problem with the Republican Party is they don't teach you to be nasty enough. Uh, you know, so he sends out the, the famous memo in 1990 saying, you know, speak like Newt, uh, talk about the Democrats, that they are corrupt, uh, that they're traitors, uh, that they're abusing power. Um, uh, and of course, his actual uh, activities against two different Democratic speakers of the House, it just introduced an entirely new politics. It's commonplace now. This is, you know, we're all living in Newt's world right now. Uh, but when you think about uh, the constant uh, shutdowns, obstruction, uh, the bitterness, well, that's that, that has roots in the, the shutdowns of 1995 and 1996. The constant bitterness in our politics has roots in Newt's uh, lexicon and also the conspiracy theories. The big lie that we talk about now, the prototype for that I, I described in the book is remember Vince Foster. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, of course, there have always been conspiracy theories. You know, I mean, just think about the, you know, the, the JFK assassination. But with Vince Foster, you know, just briefly, Clinton, uh, longtime Clinton friend, uh, deputy White House counsel, suicide, very obvious. He was depressed, wrote a suicide note, was getting uh, antidepressants. But others turned it into a suspected murder. You know, Dan Burton uh, famously shooting a melon to prove that it was it was a murder. But Gingrich, you know, didn't go as far as melon shooting, but he did say, you know, four different independent uh, investigations demonstrated that this was uh, a suicide. And he says, you know, I just don't accept it when he was Speaker of the House. Yeah. That, I think that was pivotal because it was saying somebody second in line to the presidency is saying, okay, it's all right to uh, believe in these uh, conspiracy theories, to bring that in uh, to the mainstream. So, you know, I think there's a direct line from that to, uh, you know, Sarah Palin's death panels to the big lie. So what's interesting about your analysis is you write that the contract with America really wasn't that significant in 1994. It really didn't get that headway, but you're right. But the rise of Gingrich and his shock troops sent the nation on a course toward the ruinous politics of today. So it's not the ideology, it's the tactics, it's the posturing, it's the willingness to go there. Is that your thesis? Right. And I don't think Gingrich wasn't particularly ideological. Uh, he was, like Trump himself, he started out with many different positions than the ones he wound up with. And you know, we've got to remember Donald Trump you know, I followed him around in 1999. He thought he might run for president on the reform ticket. He was uh, pro-choice. He was for universal health care. He obviously donated a lot of money to Democrats. And he, his rival, Pat Buchanan, he's saying, we need to be for tolerance. He went to the Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles to talk about this tolerance. Yeah. So he completely reinvented himself to get out in front of what he saw as this growing nativist base of the Republican Party. 
So that Trump reinvention, the Gingrich reinvention, it wasn't about ideology. The Bush administration with you know Dick Cheney popping up and saying Reagan proved that deficits don't matter. I mean, decoupling the Republican Party from small government conservatism. Yeah. It over time lost its moorings in in conservatism and small government conservatism. So in you know, in a very real sense, I think the Republican Party left you, Charlie. By the way, since you mentioned that section on Trump's early run when he was reinventing himself as sort of the anti-Pat Buchanan, I read those several pages out loud to my wife because it's really extraordinary. If you want to know about where Donald Trump came from and and you know how the posture he's taking now is completely different than what some of the things he was talking about. Well, let me tell you just a very brief story that I that I have told before, and this is in the in the interest of full disclosure. That in early 1995, right after um, the Republican takeover and uh, Gingrich was riding high and was writing a book, I actually was hired to be his ghostwriter mm-hmm. for his book, and I spent a week with the speaker, which was quite an experience. I eventually decided that this guy was completely incoherent in terms of his his ideas. I mean, watching him, that he was mm-hmm. too crazy to deal with. So I bailed on the project, which was one of the best decisions I ever made. <laughs> but I also came to the conclusion that 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 Gingrich was was something other than a principled person who is interested in a coherent philosophy of government. I'm putting that as nicely as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. So that yes. For people who say that, well, this is all the inevitable result of conservative ideology, guys like Newt Gingrich were among these first of the, well, look, I mean, there's always been liars, there have always been charlatans, but he was the first person who seemed to be bringing that sort of charlatanism, that that really also aggressive, in-your-face, triggering the opposition for the sake of triggering the opposition into the center of our politics. And mm-hmm. we haven't gone back from them. And no one's able to push back against that anymore. Yeah, I mean, Trump is not the inevitable result of conservative ideology. He's the betrayal (laughs) of conservative ideology. And yes, of course, you saw that with Gingrich. And you certainly saw it in the the spending during the George W. Bush administration was greater than at any point since Lyndon Johnson. But it was a betrayal of conservative principles. I mean, you know, obviously Ronald Reagan uh, himself would have no home in this Republican Party. It's very clear that John McCain wouldn't. Uh, George W. Bush uh, clearly doesn't. Dick Cheney has uh, has returned, but it, it's very clear that he's lost this battle already. So it's very much a betrayal, in in my view, of conservative principles. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many discussions I've had with people. I used to cover the White House during the George W. Bush administration, and uh, saying to them, "Can you remind me what we were all fighting about back oh, then?" Oh gosh, yeah, no. Because you know, like it seemed like everybody was at each other's throats, but they were talking about the size of tax cuts. <laughs> they, They weren't talking about pedophiles with dementia uh, turning us into a socialist dystopia. We were were discussing what was best for our nation because each side believed still that the other side was the opponent, not the enemy. It was in transition then, uh, but now, now that is entirely lost. So it's it's totally speculative. I, I see somebody on Twitter raising the question, like, uh, you know, would, would Ronald Reagan have gone along with with Donald Trump? And of course, we absolutely don't know. I have no idea. No. Which is why the Dick Cheney story is so interesting. It's a little bit like a time machine, like somebody who has come from a different era, and it's like, okay, what would you from this era, from the before times, what would you think about what's happening now? And we know where Cheney and Liz Cheney are 
are standing here. Now, I don't think it's possible to overstate the role of the donor class, the media, the interest groups and everything. So you talk about the unraveling. How do you measure the unraveling? How do, you, how do we chronicle the unraveling of the threads of democracy and civil society over the last quarter century? Well, look, I think, Charlie, there have always been the conspiracy-minded. There have always been the violent. There have always been uh, the authoritarian. There's always been the, the, the white nationalists, the racists. You know, and so we've, we've already discussed how these popped up at various times, you know, like Pat Buchanan, for example, and before that, the John Birch Society. But there was always sort of a nucleus. There, uh, there were people in the Republican Party. There was, you know, Bob Dole would push back against that. Uh, there was Charlie Sykes refusing to be Newt's uh, a ghostwriter. Uh, you know, there was George W. Bush. There were, uh, the, and there's George H. W. Bush. There was a, a solid core there that would say, "No, we're not letting that into the tent." Yes, we're going to try to harness that energy, uh, but we're not going to let them take over. Gradually, uh, they took over. Uh, you know, so I've, I've sort of put it into four baskets. You know, one is sort of the loss of uh, uh, contact with reality, the beginning of the uh, alternative facts, the idea that you can say things that are just fundamentally not true and get away with it. And a large proportion of your voters are going to uh, believe that. The notion of uh, dysfunction that uh, I think particularly accelerated with Newt and with the loss of the uh, greatest generation from politics, you know, replaced by culture warriors who thought the other side was the enemy, uh, letting in the the white nationalists more and more into the party to try to generate energy from them. We saw that a, a good bit with the Tea Party. And then these anti-democratic tendencies, which I think is inevitable uh, if you're going to uh, place your future of your party with disaffected uh, non-college educated white voters, they are becoming a minority. The only way you win then is to get them to turn out in extraordinary numbers. So that's what leads us uh, to where uh, we are now with what's happening in the state legislatures to uh, with uh, disenfranchisement and taking over of, uh, of the voting operations. But uh, none of this would have happened if we didn't have after they initially recoiled at Donald Trump, the Republican establishment in 2016, after he secured the nomination, saying to the donors, it's okay. You know, he'll be our guy. He'll be our useful idiot. So when you describe the Republicans as destructionists, let's be more explicit. What was it that they destroyed? Because of course, until five minutes ago, conservatives would have told you that they are the party of American exceptionalism. They are the party of American greatness, right? They are the party of America first. So what is it that you think they have destroyed or they are destructing? Well, uh, crucially, they've destroyed our shared sense of the truth, the idea that, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, but not, as Moynihan said, to your own facts. Now they, we are entitled to, to our own set of facts. It's impossible as Liz Cheney said, to live in a free society when you can't agree on the truth. This whole idea, I mean, if, you know, Mitch McConnell famously said, we want to make Barack Obama a one-term president and, you know, build up uh, a litany of defeat so that suddenly he becomes a failure. That was uh, one thread that was pulled out, you know, the, tr the transition from Bob Michael, who successfully shepherded Ronald Reagan's agenda through the Democratic House by working on uh, consensus and uh, you know making concessions with Gingrich who said we're going to stop things at all costs now yes they, they got through welfare reform and a balanced budget 
uh, he, he learned after his uh, initial obstructionism. But that became the way things would work going forward. After the Bush administration came in, and we expected with the 50-50 Senate, this extraordinary close election, they would be governing by consensus. But you know, Karl Rove and others had this innovation that there's no more persuadable voters. We just need to turn right. out our side in maximum number and ideally depress turnout on the other side, and we win. And guess what, Charlie? They weren't wrong. You can, at least in the short term, you can definitely do that. And the whole idea is we don't need to have consensus. We don't need to compromise with the other side. We're just going to get every maximum thing we can out of our side. You know, the Hastert rule, same idea. That the idea is you have to have consensus within your own caucus. You can't be striking a deal with the other side. So I, I've used the term the recessive gene on the right, uh, that the, we, we always had the politics of paranoia, the conspiracy theorists, the nut jobs, uh, the crackpots, et cetera, in, in the party. But they were always sort of on the fringe. Um, Pat Buchanan maybe, you know, was able to break out a little bit in 1992, but but ultimately he didn't get the nomination. It was not, uh, you know, his his party. You know, and so he was out there, you know, praising Adolf Hitler, you know, and lamenting the treatment of European and Americans. And they were never, never dominant. Donald Trump came along. And I guess this is the whole, you know, you know, chicken and egg problem about, you know, white nationalism and racism. They are tapping into it in a really raw, ugly way, which would suggest mm -hmm. that it was always latent there. But so in, in your read, how much was always there and how much, though, is being fomented. And, and I ask this because I'm, I, I continue to look at the voters in places like Wisconsin who voted mm -hmm. for Barack Obama twice and then voted mm -hmm. twice for Donald Trump. So mm -hmm. what, what is it? I mean, it's, what is your take on that? There have always been crackpots in American yeah. uh, culture on the right and on the left. Um, and I don't think people on the right were any more likely to believe in conspiracy theories, any more likely to be violent are arguably more likely to be authoritarian, but I, I don't think that's by a, a substantial uh, margin. And so what's happened here is not that there are more of these people. I don't think there are more people today in America who don't believe uh, in democracy than there were 10, 20, 30 years ago. The problem is they've been mainstreamed. They've been allowed in by people who knew better by the leadership within the Republican Party. So, you know, that's the crucial change that happened. It wasn't a change to us as, as Americans. It was about who we're allowing to be in the mainstream. And, you know, I think Trump happened in large part. And before that, the Tea Party happened in large part because of a backlash against a black president. And yes, you there are a number of people who were uh, Obama voters uh, who became Trump voters. But I think even more of the story of Trump is different people entirely uh, turning out in extraordinary numbers for Donald Trump, who got his start with the birther campaign in 2011, fueled by Fox News. You know, a blatantly racist notion that uh, uh, Obama wasn't uh, born in the United States, you know, which was just one step away from saying he's a Muslim. And what was he a a Kenyan neo-colonialist or <laughs> something like that, something that Newt had said. But that is what allowed Trump to happen. It was it was a natural backlash that was occurring that uh, he stoked rather than saying, as the party did under Pat Buchanan, no, we don't stand for this. There was no longer that core to stand together and say, 
as individuals did, but never together as a party to say, no, we don't stand for that. So I think part of it was that backlash against the black president. And of course, in 2016, backlash against a woman uh, becoming president. So, uh, you know, and there'd been, you know, any number of, you know, political science studies that show that these were, you know, primary motivating factors for a number of Trump voters. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a misconception that this was an economic concern. It was very much a concern about white men losing their place in American culture. So that's what allowed it to happen. And a Republican establishment that said, we're going to make a deal with the devil. We're going to take this short-term win here, uh, and then we'll, we'll be able to deal with it. And of course, they weren't able to deal with it. Well, there's a lot of focus on the influence of Fox News, which I think people who listen to this uh, understand. But Fox News is only part of what had developed into this uh, sort of a hermetically sealed right-wing media ecosystem. And, and I, I certainly recall when even pretty hardcore conservatives had to live in an information world where they were exposed to mainstream news, fact-based news, other opinions. In fact, I used to joke that, you know, to be a conservative, of course you knew what the other side was saying because you you, you get it on a daily basis on radio, on right. television, and magazines, and newspapers, etc. And in some ways that gave conservatives an advantage because they knew what the other side thought. Whereas, and again, this is from the before times, was, you know, p- people on the left can go through much of their lives without ever encountering a conservative argument, you know. So I mean, William F. Buckley used to joke about, you know, that the liberals were actually surprised to hear that there was another point of view on all of this. Well, that's completely changed now, hasn't it? Because you can live in a world in which, you know, not only are there no legitimate arguments or facts uh, or issues that, that, that you need to confront that might challenge your worldview, but that you can really bask in a world that reinforces all of your priors and that is constantly designed to make you paranoid, outraged, and angry at anyone who doesn't agree with you. I mean, that really has been a change in the last 25 years, hasn't it? Yeah, 25 now, even even more. I think it was Rush Limbaugh went national with his radio show in 1988, mm-hmm. which is also exactly the time concurrent with Gingrich's rise, and there was a lot of symbiotic relationship there. So if Fox News, which began in 1996, didn't happen, something else would have because we were, all, we were already headed in that direction. So you had this explosion uh, of conservative talk radio, you had the Drudge Report, and then you had... Fox News. And of course, look, the social media has siloed everybody so that, you know, everybody's only getting a news feed based on whatever's reinforcing their uh, original views that they were predisposed to have anyway. So this is a universal problem throughout our culture. It took a turn uh, on the right. I think it took a turn uh, with certain aspects of talk radio that particularly with Limbaugh and uh, Levin, that took a more uh, pernicious turn. And it certainly happened on Fox News as well. John Boehner wrote a book about his experience in this, and I've, I've quoted from him as well, but you know, he sees this notion that people he thought were part of the sane participants yes. in American culture sort of went off the deep end and became you know, the crazies. And he complained about it to Roger Ailes and realized he's talking to the president of the crazy club. <laughs> Um, so part of it's the natural changes that occurred because of social media. It's also the total breakdown and loss of anything resembling local news in America, local uh, metropolitan newspapers, uh, local TV, you know, that united Americans in a sense, you know, we all care about our, you know, roads and our weather and whatever else is going on. And now that we're all, we're not getting our local news and we're just 
getting national news, which is much more about fighting, of course that uh, that fuels the situation we're in. So there's there are certainly structures and changes at play here that are bigger than any ideology or any political parties. And it was a little bit of partially by accident and partially by discovery that I think innovators like Limbaugh realize that you know people are going to tune in when he plays uh, Barack the Magic Negro. Uh, <laughs> on his station. And unfortunately, it, that was rewarded. So where's the arc bending with the arc of the Republican Party bending? You talk about the degradation accelerating and you can see it with Republican leaders ignoring or discrediting the information that's coming out about uh, January 6th, uh, Trump demanding the removal of the of the mags at the Ellipse rally or entertaining mm-hmm. or, or actually thinking about having the military seizing voting machines, installing new leaders of the Department of of Justice, all of this. So where do you think this is going? Because my sense is that all of this is accelerating at an, you know, at an exponential rate that, that no matter how bad you thought it was before, it's worse now. And no matter how bad you think things are now, because the, the stakes are constantly, you know, have to constantly be be jacked up, that it's going to be worse. What, what is your sense about where the arc is bending? Well, I'm hoping for a bulwark takeover of the Republican <laughs> Party that will save us uh, from all of this. So I'm, that's going to be any week now. But look, and, you want, mean, and you want a unicorn for Christmas too, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, as you outlined it, you know, there, you know, we're getting more and more hysterical, it seems almost with every passing week here. You know, something's uh, got to give. You know, I'm very optimistic in the long term because this, you know, struggle of, you know, the changing uh, color of America, I mean, it gets resolved. You can't, you, you can only defy demographics for so long. We're becoming a white minority nation. That's happening, even if we don't have any more uh, immigrants. So, you know, a generation or two from now, that situation will resolve itself. But, you know, what's going to be left of our democracy uh, uh, in the short term, uh, you know, you know, what will we have left by the time we get to that is where I'm uneasy. You know, it, I made the comparison to, you know, the pre-Oklahoma city bombing and before the violence of 2010 and 2011, because, you know, unfortunately the kind of heated system with heated rhetoric we're in now almost inevitably leads to right. violence. Will there be something catastrophic that will cause us all to recoil and turn back from the abyss? Mm. Well, I don't want to wish for something catastrophic to happen to cause that, but it's hard to see in the short term how the fever breaks. So where are we at now with the midterm elections? And I, I mentioned at the at the top of the podcast, it, it does feel the uh, conventional wisdom is shifting a little bit. Inflation is abating a little bit. Uh, we're having more polls showing that maybe this massive red wave may be a wave, but it's, you know, it's going, you know, the hurricane has been downgraded. Mm-hmm. Roe versus Wade continues to be a huge question mark, particularly after what happened in Kansas. So you know, mm-hmm. put on your pundit hat here. Where, where do you think we're at? I mean, if you and I were having this conversation a couple of months ago, we'd be saying, you know, Joe Biden and the Democrats are about to get wiped out. That doesn't appear to be the case right now. Or what do you think? Well, Charlie, I tossed my crystal ball after uh, 2016. Yeah, I, I, I had to eat my column after saying Republican voters are, are too good for, uh, for Donald Trump. But uh, Look, I mean, the Democrats, I mean, they're going to lose the House. The losses will be limited be, just because there are so few uh, seats in play. And I fear Republicans will take the wrong lesson from that. And that is that, you know, it's a reward for the kind of politics that we are in right now. 
you know, the, the, the Senate may be a different story, but I see the, the midterm elections as something the Republicans are going to take as vindication of the kind of politics they've been practicing. These legislative wins the Democrats are touting that think you know, put the wind at their back, do you think that they will, in fact, have an impact on, on the election? Or do you think that that's a sideshow? It could have a marginal impact. But, you know, a moment ago, we're talking about the silos. And if you are hearing that this socialist uh, demented pedophile in, in the White House is bringing America to ruin, I just don't think that stuff is breaking through. I think we're fundamentally in parallel universes right now or in a universe and then an alt- alternative uh, reality. The number of people who are just uh, uh, persuadable are just very, very few. So I, I just, I see those things as having some effect at the margin, which as you, so yes, you're correct. It could lessen the uh, the height of the wave that's going to crash, but I just, I just don't see uh, any, you know, actual thing that's occurring being able to, to shape that. I mean, even in the best of times, uh, Joe Biden is not going to get 50% approval. We remember, though, you know, in 2010, 2012, where Republicans uh, blew winnable races across the country because they went too crazy. They had crackpots. So you have Herschel Walker running for Senate. You have Dr. Oz in, in Pennsylvania. You have Kerry Lake running for governor in Arizona, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. All of these were eminently winnable races for Republicans. I guess the question is, does is crazy still disqualifying? Well, I think it will be, and that's the only reason why they, uh, the Senate may remain Democratic, uh, is because you know the, the, the crazies have certainly uh, prevailed in Republican primaries, thanks in, in no small part to Donald Trump. So let's assume the Democrats are, against the odds, able to keep the Senate and lose the House. Will Republicans draw a lesson that we would have done even better if we didn't nominate all these crazies, or will they take the lesson that our politics has caused us to win back the House and we need to double down on our campaign of crazy for 2024. I, I think it's pretty obvious to me what lesson will be drawn. Well, you know, your, your book is The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Um, Republicans like Kevin McCarthy will say, well, the only thing that we've destroyed is the Democratic Party. And look, this is winning. We didn't crack up. We just, yeah. we, we cracked the code how to, uh, to get back power, right? I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't that going to be their spin after November? It absolutely will be. They can say they destroyed the Democratic Party, and, and maybe that'll be true. They could say they destroyed the media. They, they could say mm-hmm. they destroyed the FBI and the Department of Justice and the, the court system. And in doing so, they prevailed as a Republican Party and, uh, and broke America. So uh, let's talk about a, a Pyrrhic victory. Dana Milbank, thank you so much. Dana is nationally syndicated columnist for The Washington Post. Latest book out this week which I strongly recommend. In fact, I blurbed, which is, you know, I'm putting my mouth where my mouth is. The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Dana Milbank, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Charlie, I love the show. Thank you so much for having me. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.